We interrupt this program to bring you the Utility Players Classified Results. Arsenal 1, Liverpool 1, Brisbane Broncos 12, Sydney Roosters 58, Rory McIlroy 3 over, tied 12th, Edinburgh Rugby 3, Glasgow Warriors 15, Adelaide Crows 83, Hawthorne 48. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Do you know what that sound means, Rory? Do you know what that sound means? The Adelaide Crows have won a game of Australian rules football this season. How good does that feel? <laughs> the, the rebuild has started. The rebuild has started. Get me that T-shirt. <laughs> Get me that T-shirt. <laughs> no, I, just, I actually never believed it was going to happen. Every single week, I was like, oh, it's never going to happen. And when, you, when you, you said to me this morning when the game was on, you said, the Crows are winning, Rory. And I thought, oh, right, it's the first quarter. They're not going to win the game. But fair play, they absolutely pummeled Hawthorne in the end and it was a comprehensive victory for the Crows I, 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 as I was watching it I thought I was there was a period just after quarter time start of the second quarter when Hawthorne scored two unanswered goals and went one point behind and I thought oh here we go here we go you know 12 minutes 15 minutes of good play and then it's all going to be undone but no they just kept going and kept going and stretched the lead further and further and and we finally, like all teams now have have either won or, or finished in the top 10 or had some sort of positive results. So we haven't had everyone winning yet in a, in a week as, well, a couple of teams let us down, but your Broncos has ever got well actually thrash. But the Crows have won. We we are we are there. We have done it. <laughs> I just, we just seen a golfer to win now. And obviously that is much harder for obvious reasons, but it'll be a great day when a golfer finally wins. And I think maybe for the clean sweep, We'll exclude the golfers for now and we'll just try to get a clean sleep of all our teams in the same week and then the golfers can come in afterwards. Well, I, I kind of, I've kind of in the back of my mind been thinking about this. A clean sweep for me would count with the golfers are in the top 10. Okay. I think top, top 10 um, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a tournament, a PGA tournament, that, that is because, you know, it's, it's you know, a field of 70, 80 plus people. I think it's only fair that um, they'll, they'll be able to recognition that. But this week we are joined by Crystalline Steinable, who is a member of the South African Women's Sevens rugby team. Looking forward to hearing all about the world of Sevens rugby and South African rugby from her later in the show. But the other team that, that, that won and got the first bit of silverware for the season, the Mighty Gunners, took uh, Liverpool down. It was 1-1 in the, in the roundup. They won 5-4 in penalties. And I only saw the highlights, uh, but from what I saw, thoroughly played to the level of Liverpool and, and at times outplayed them. And is this a good thing of signs to come? Or is this 
signs of what I was talking about. Can Liverpool play the tempo and style of football they want to play without a packed stadium, whether it be at Anfield, away fans or at Wembley, pushing them on to play that high-tempo, high-pressing, high-energy brand of football constantly for not necessarily 90 minutes, but for 60, 70 minutes plus? Yeah, I mean, I think there's loads of interesting ones. I think, firstly, interesting to see that you counted it as a trophy for Arsenal. I've seen people saying that it is, and some people saying that it isn't. Which, and I get both sides of it, but I think at the end of the day, they lifted the trophy and they should celebrate that. Well, so, just before you go on, I've said a bit about I think it's ridiculous that you can't call it a trophy. Yeah. Because you, you have to have won the Premier League or the FA Cup. To get there. So you have to have won something. You have to have earned the right. You don't say that someone's got to a semi-final, won a semi-final and got to a final, and then say, oh, they, they, they haven't won a trophy. Yeah, it's not a major trophy, but, but you have to have won something to have got there. It, you know, if, if it wasn't taken seriously by teams, it would have been scrapped. So those people who say it isn't a trophy are just talking absolute rubbish. You're probably fans of teams who want to hold something over over the likes of Man United, Arsenal, Liverpool, whoever, who've won it, you know, numerous times. I think you have to have succeeded to get there. You have to have earned it. It's not just a glorified, we'll pick two teams. You know, you have to have earned the right to make that game. And when you've earned the right to get somewhere, then that absolutely is a trophy. Yeah, I know. I mean, I certainly, I said this to both sides of it, but I get what you're saying. I mean, I guess that, that argument falls down slightly in years like last year where, Man City won both the FA Cup and the Premier League, so Liverpool were in there as the second team in the league. But I still think, yeah, you're right. It is a trophy. You always enjoy winning silverware, and that should be celebrated. But with the kind of in the back of your mind, knowing that at the end of the day, it's not a major trophy and that it should be used as a platform to build on rather than as a end of the product type of thing. But no, certainly on to Liverpool. I think it's really interesting. I think that they might well not be able to play that high-pressing game. I think the, the 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 thing there that falls down is that they have been able to play that game away from home and all over Europe and do it successfully when they haven't had the Anvil crowd behind them. So I still think they'll be capable. What I think a lot of them is maybe they're showing the lack of strength and depth that Liverpool have got. And we know that Liverpool has a fantastic starting eleven, but when you go beyond that, it's whether the depth is there. And, and we saw a lot of substitutions and we saw, I mean, even Minamino scoring the goal was, was, the, was one of the obvious examples of that was that actually the depth of quality, it maybe isn't there for Liverpool. And in a season where it's going to be, you're going to need a lot of players because games are going to come thick and fast. You're going in with less of a pre-season, so fatigue is going to be more of a factor. It's whether Liverpool will really struggle. And I think you're seeing sides like Chelsea really strengthen their squad. Man City probably have a slightly more depth in their squad. And you actually do wonder, if it was starting 11 versus starting 11, Liverpool should probably win the league again. But over the course of the season... I'm less sure about how Liverpool are going to do going forward because of the, the potential lack of depth that they had. And they don't seem to be obviously going to sign loads of players. I mean, there's talk of Thiago coming in, etc. But it doesn't seem like they're making big changes to their squad. So that might be what knocks them down in the end. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw Jurgen Klopp this week complaining or looking to do a U-turn on the fact that they're going to get rid of the five substitution rule and go back to three because uh, because he thinks it's unfair on his players. Well. I, I personally, I think that's just managerial, you know, crap, you know, spin doctor work to to cover for the fact, as you say, that they're not, you know, not getting the the, the depth in to, to to go again. Everyone's in the same boat, you know, and and they should be actually in a better place than say the the two Manchester teams and what have you because they didn't play sort of European football. And they're used to playing week in, week out, Tuesday, Saturday, or, or Wednesday, Sunday. You know, it's something they, they've got used to over the last couple of years. So 
I think it's just he's talking rubbish there. But I agree. It seems very strange. I mean, you look at Fergie. What Fer- Alex Ferguson was brilliant at is when his teams were on top, he invested again. He didn't wait until there was a slight dip. And obviously, if they get Thiago in, if that goes across the line, which has got a little bit quiet on, it was a lot of talk for a while, then that's going to be massive for Liverpool. That, that really will be. And, and, and that could be game-changing. But actually, that, that front three have been so potent for a number of years. And you know, they've tried to have Shakiri and, and Oxlade-Chamberlain and now they've got Minamino and they've got Origi coming in. But I, I feel they're, they're overdue for an injury in those front three. It's a horrible thing to say. You don't want to see injuries happen. Of course you don't. But just for a law of average, how often injuries happen, I think of Mane, Firmino and, and Salah. And I might be wrong, but I can't think of a huge amount of injuries that they've had to deal with with those front three for the last two and a bit years. So... One of those goes down, it really, really, it's like it's the Jenga piece that potentially brings the whole thing down. So I think you're right. It's, you know, where's that investment going to be? Now's the time to do it straight while the iron's hot. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it'll be interesting to see what happens. With the five subs, the only reason I'd like to see the five subs again this year is only because players are going to be so knackered by the end of the year. The Euros is going to be absolutely awful next year because nobody's going to have any energy left. But that's just my leaning towards international football. But no, I think you're right. I think they do certainly need to get some more strength and depth. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think my un- very unfortunate secret outside hunch of the Premier League this year is Chelsea with the way they're going with the players that they're bringing in. But we'll, we'll see what happens in, in the coming weeks. Um, yeah, I, I think Chelsea are, are going to be a real dark horse to watch. What will, what will determine their success is um, how quickly their players gel uh, in, a, in a short and off season with, with lots of new people coming in. You know, what was probably successful from last year was the lack of transfer funds. Well, they weren't allowed to make any transfers and it was a young squad with a young manager. So it was that camaraderie, that working as a team. How quickly can can new players bed into that? Because with the quality they're bringing in, if they can bed in quickly, then as you say, watch out. But it'll be, be really intriguing to see what happens there. There's something else this week um, that we're going to see is is with this, they see the PGA Tour Championship taking place. A prize fund of almost $2 million. Uh, for the winner, we're down to the last 30 players. I tell you what, if we have a finish to, to the Tour Championship like we had on this Sunday with, with Dustin Johnson and John Ram, it'll be worth uh, staying up to the early hours here in the, here in the UK. Justin Johnson, to take the game to a playoff on the 18th, needed to sink probably about a 30-foot putt that I reckon he could have, he could have breathed on the ball harder, how, <laughs> how he touched it. It was right at the top of the ridge. And you listen to the commentators constantly in the way they think it's given it a chance, it's given it a chance. And Wormhold dropped right in the front of the hole. And that was only to be topped by the first hole of the playoff by John Ram. Sinky's was about 50, 60 foot long, which was swung all the way across the green. And again, right in the front of the hole to, 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 to win, the, win, the, win the thing. It was just amazing to see. And actually, what I take away most, if anyone's seen the two highlights or watched it live, the difference in reaction between Dustin Johnson and John Ram is amazing. Dustin Johnson, this sort of cool fist pump, barely in emotion showed a bit of a wry smile. John Ram running across the green, you know, shouting, whooping, hollering. Just brilliant to see how to like top end of the game, how different personalities sort of show their emotion and just two outstanding quality bits of play. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think actually John Ram ended up coming down the same ridge that Johnson had putted down before. So maybe he'd seen Johnson's putt and taken a line from it from from this previous one. But no, it was great. It was, it was an unbelievable finish. And it, 
And maybe the difference of the reaction came from the fact that Johnson was still in a playoff where when Ram held that, he, he kind of, he didn't know he'd won it because Johnson's held a putt, but made it very likely. So, and actually it was really nice to see this, such a passionate reaction because I've seen a few golf tournaments recently since it's come back when the, the players won and it's been pretty muted. It's almost felt kind of anticlimactic without obviously the big cheer of the fans and, and all that side of it. So to kind of have that big climactic finish to a golf tournament was really nice to see again. Yeah, brilliant. And, and, Goes back to what I've been saying. You don't need gimmicks and stuff around things to, to create entertainment. It, it's down to the men and women playing the sport to, to do that. And that's certainly what 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 we're seeing. The quality will will, will outlast. And talking of sort of quality, we saw uh, some quality cricket being played. T20 internationals were back with England taking on Pakistan this week. And, and we saw uh, for the first time in a long time, international cricket being broadcast back on the BBC. A, a, a different different way to go about it from Sky Sports, a, a different product, a good product, and and great to see uh, international cricket back on terrestrial television. This is something that I've been kind of musing over for a while, and I think that I've got something I want to pick your brains on here, Ali. So, so we saw cricket return to the BBC at the, uh, at the weekend of the bank holiday for the first time since 1999, obviously a time on Channel 4 and Channel 5 following that, and then and then Sky Sports. Um, but one thing that really came to attention actually after the World Cup final is that how important it is for all sport, and I think cricket certainly a sport that's always trying to increase its engagement and increase its reach within the UK, how important it is actually to try get the biggest sporting events being shown back on free-to-air again. Because... Naturally, the television reach is so much greater. So, I mean, I was I was doing some research, for example, um, and the game this weekend on the BBC peaked a, a live audience of 2.8 million. Obviously, it, it comes and goes at the broadcast, but we look mainly at peak, peak broadcast. That's what it was. Where if you compare that to an average test match on Sky, the peak would be about a million an average of about 600,000 and the peak being about a million. So you've got a million more people watching this game than you would do in an average test match in the sky. And you could argue that the returning test against the West Indies was the showpiece of the summer because it was the first piece of cricket back we had. And, and actually, the, the ratings said they struggled. They only got to about 700,000. So And that's just your kind of average standard in England international. So if you look at the really big moments to have happened over the past few years, if you look at the World Cup final last year being a big one, that peaked 8 million viewers. And that's the highest cricket had peaked in the UK since the Ashes in 2005, which was obviously showed on Channel 4. And out of that 8 million, 5 million of them were watched on the BBC and 3 million of them was watched on Sky. So the BBC had the higher percentage, oh, not the BBC, so it was Channel 4 that was on. 5 million was on Channel 4. So the higher percentage of the audience was on Channel 4. And you think without Channel 4, they wouldn't have reached that 8 million mark. And then to kind of give the comparison to the same summer, the other highlight was Ben Stokes's 100 at Headingley in the Ashes, which is one of the defining innings of certainly our generation and will be one of the defining cricketing moments of, of the last however many years. And that peaked at 2.8 million. So that was watched by five million, well, almost 6 million less people than watched the World Cup final. And if you just compare that back to the Ashes in 2005, which I mentioned, which I think certainly will go down as the most famous and the greatest test series in modern history, and is that series that everyone always talked about, the fourth test, that peaked at 8.4 million viewers. Now, my thought of watching the Ashes this year, the Ashes this year, or last year, was absolutely brilliant. 
It was so competitive. It was really interesting with the battles between Smith and Archer and then Stokes excelling and that Headley test match. It was fantastic. Okay, you probably can never match 2005 again. But in terms of drama, it wasn't far away. But without having it on free to air to get that television audience of, as we've seen, can be five, six million more people, you're not going to have the same reach and the same appeal. And everyone will talk about the World Cup final last summer. I think the only people, people reason that people talk about the World Cup final is because so many people had the ability to watch it. So my point is, if you are a sport and if you are the governing body of the sport, surely, I know, I know the financial implications suggest that you want to go to Sky or BT or these places that can play big money for your sport. But in terms of engagement and getting people engaged with the sport, which is only going to help getting people playing at grassroots level, Surely the most important thing is trying to get your sport onto free to air so that everyone can watch it. You can get big television or you can get hype, you can get excitement. And that is surely that's the sort of thing that's going to make kids go, actually, I want to go play cricket. I want to go join my cricket club. I want to get involved in all stars or whatever these, these programs are to get kids involved in cricket. Surely that is in terms of the development of the game, one of the most important things. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've touched on what I was going to bring about first of all, um, which is the finances before I do that, you know, the, the, you need to, there needs to be a bit of context. Here. I mean, I, I don't know the Ben Stokes innings. I which you said was not followed as much. I think it says 2.8 million. I, I can't remember. I would assume I can't remember, but if it's the fifth day of a test, it's most likely to be on a Monday or a Tuesday, the world cup finals on a weekend. So just plain, plain and simple. I might be wrong, but if that's the case, then people are at work. So that's going to have an impact first and foremost. Compare that to the the four. You've, you've already said the fourth test of the Ashes series. By the time in two thousand five, by the time we've got to the fourth test of the Ashes series, it, the drama's already started, and and everyone's engaged with, with it and etc. So then, I'd imagine if you broke it down into those days of the fourth test again, I would suggest that the Saturday, Sunday, maybe Friday, the peak figures would be higher than the Thursday or the Monday or the Tuesday. Again, just by the fact that people are working. That I, I say I have no stats to back up. That's just kind of my, my initial thoughts. There always needs to be some context provided to this thing. I completely agree with you that exposure for anyone watching a sport in, in a country is massive. We've seen how important sport is to, to local and you know national you know, populations with we're being removed due to COVID nineteen, and what an important part it plays in in culture uh, of of a country. So, getting it to a, as wide an audience as possible is absolutely needed. But as you said, Nick, the world runs around money, and there are some great initiatives out there, like you said, All Stars, other grassroots programs. If you are going to remove the how many. Multi, and we're, and we're talking multi, multi, multi million pound deals away from the ECB, from the FA, from the SFA, from Scottish Rugby, whatever it is, you're not you're not going to be able to necessarily fund these programs. Where's the money for coming from to fund these programs? Also, where is the money coming from to fund the professional game? England, as a cricketing nation, and especially in white ball cricket has gone up tenfold in the last how many years to the fact that now one of 50 over World Cup. They are able to invest in test mass contracts. They're able to invest in 
white ball contracts, one day and T20 contracts. They're able to invest in some players who have contracts in both formats. They get people. You can now get people like Adel Rashid, who specialises in white ball cricket and is taking white ball contracts. You're allowing the England player. You're allowing the ECB to pay the counties to allow the counties to have their county players not be serviceable to their county because they're playing for England and the counties aren't out of pocket. But yet, England cricketers can go back and play for their counties still. Where is this money going to come from? Where, where is this money going to come from to allow that to happen? We're already talking about, let's go a level below, okay? Yes, grassroots is important. Yes, international cricket is important. The level below that is counter cricket. They're already talking about how sustainable counter cricket is, first-class cricket is. They're looking at bringing in the 100. They're looking to bring in all these ways to keep people engaged. You remove those contracts with Sky and BT and whoever might have it, where is that money replaced from? I'm not saying I like it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's proper. I don't know whether this is where then the government comes in. You, you know, there's, there, there are sporting events like the Olympics, like the uh, FIFA World Cup, uh, like the British Open, or op the Open as it should be called, not the British Open. That's very much an Americanism, where by law they have to be on free-to-air television. Is this something that looks to be expanded where some sort of partnership? You might have to go to that level, but I just, I just can't see a way that we keep, that the ECB and England keeps the product that it does, with the financial windfall, uh, lack of windfall that would come from moving it back back to free to air, and I'd love to see Sky get in partnership with Channel Four, Channel Five, the BBC, come up with some sort of agreement where certain games are shown or highlight packages or what have you, I don't know the ins and outs, but from from very much from the funding from the grassroots level, from the funding from the ECB to counties so that counties can then run their, you know, their regional Premier League amateur cricket on a Saturday, you know, so that counties can run themselves and then therefore feed the England Lions, can feed the England team, can feed the women's game. You know, the women's game is going massively up. Women's cricket is growing massively, especially in England, which is putting so much investment into it. But the women's game itself at the moment is still not generating enough, to my knowledge. And if I'm wrong, I'm happy to be correct. And I'd love to hear that that isn't the case. But the women, the money that's being rightly put into the women's game to try and get it to, to parity, the, the success we've seen in the women's game globally that money needs to come from somewhere. And unfortunately, they're not getting enough bums on seats at county level, at professional level, underneath international level, that all these great things we are seeing in the game of cricket would just not be feasible. Yeah, and I mean, you basically kind of outlined all the things that I was slightly concerned about with this, is that whether it was feasible and the importance of TV revenue in all sport and cricket, obviously being the example here, but it's, I mean, we've seen... With, certainly with COVID, with a lot of sports TV revenue is the only thing that's allowing professional sports to survive in a lot of ways. So, of course, it is possible and, and difficult and maybe even impossible, but it just feels like a massive shame. And I just feel like we're never going to have a test series like the Ashes in 2005 ever again, because even if it is as dramatic, it, it's not going to be as experienced by many, as many people. And, and I, I mean, I looked up that Ben Stokes one there. It was the 20, I believe, I might be wrong there, but I believe it was the 25th of August, which was a Sunday. So it was on a Sunday, but I mean, kind of goes either way. But but I guess my one rebuttal, and now I, I again, I might be being extremely naive here, and I'm happy to be told otherwise. But my thought is then, yes, okay, 
you lose out a lot of TV revenue, not having it on Sky or BT or whatever it is. But do you not think though, but by having it on the on a free to air channel, you increase engagement, you increase popularity, and therefore you increase more people watching it and enjoying it and wanting to be involved with cricket, and then that will do the things like get people coming back to the stadiums because they realise the excitement of going to cricket. So they might go and watch their local county at the weekend. And that feeds into then getting the bums on the seats that you said we need. And then that feeds into money into the counties. I mean, we saw the queues of people trying to get into the 2005 Ashes because it was that exciting. And obviously, not every series is going to be 2005 Ashes, but you think that it's going to increase the visibility and therefore going to increase the amount of people wanting to go to watch the games. And therefore, by that, you then get more money into the counties and it builds up from the bottom in that sort of sense. And you get more people playing the game and therefore you, and more people watching it. You can charge more for advertising because it can be seen by more people. And then that just snowballs effects and it goes into something much bigger than what it is now in a much more almost authentic manner. So it's almost like you're reducing the audience to increase the money, increase the money. And that to me, and maybe this is just the way the world works and I need to be catch up. But for me, it just seems like it is, it's the wrong way around. You should increase the audience to increase the money, not decrease the audience to increase the money. It, it just seems bizarre. But I said, it might just be a case of that is simply not how the world works anymore. Well, I mean, it's whether it's a, a bottom-up approach or a top-down approach. I mean, it, you could remove the money by going free-to-air and then increase... I, mean, I think it's important that obviously the BBC still do pay for this and they still do get money from it. Obviously, it's much smaller proportion, but it's not like it would then suddenly be no money to the county at all. Yeah, but, but what I'm saying is that the, if it reduces by even twenty percent, yeah. the knock-on effect is so. So, so what? What? You know, you, you might, you might get at the base of the pyramid, much more uptake and much more high increased numbers, which would be fantastic, absolutely brilliant. But the service that they are getting provided, or the quality of coaching, the quality of cricket, the quality of you know. And I'm talking about kind of, you know, people, young cricketers getting involved who end up with a bit of, you know, they have a bit of talent and they get into a pathway system, whether it be, you know, minor counties or major counties or whatever it might be. And then if there isn't the money to then have as high level coaching, as good facilities, as well prepared wickets, as much time on task, because there isn't as much money in the game, then is it more detrimental to say that yeah we've got greater numbers brilliant but even though numbers have increased by 200 percent, quality of facilities and quality of coaching has decreased by 200 percent because what they're getting exposed to they, there isn't the money to make it possible and then you and, and again that you can you can add that i say at a recreational level your club coaches you know you can add that at the very very top level that they can't you can't pay the, the 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 top county players or the top ECB centrally contacted players as much money. So they go, well, Sodji, we'll go and play in the IPL. We'll go and play in the Big Bash League. We'll go and play in the Canadian Premier League. We'll go and play in the Caribbean Premier League. We'll go and play in the Euro Slam. We'll go and play in all these tournaments around the world because we can pay a lot more for a lot less work and 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 see it as a job. And Yes, there'll be some people out there who goes, we're playing for your country is the ultimate thing, and there will be some players who see it like that. But you run the risk of, do you lose out because you because there isn't as much money in the game? for that one. Now, that might be a short-term view. As you said, long-term, you might be able to come up with a model that allows you through a 10-, you 15-year know, period. But do you sacrifice the products? Because then if the product goes down, yes, it might be free-to-air. Yes, it might be more accessible to people. 
But no one wants to watch a losing team. No one wants to watch, watch a crap team. You know, so where, do, do you sacrifice quality on the pitch for increased numbers? You know, that, that is the balance that will be being struck up around these conversations around these tables. I know, and it is it is probably, I mean, it's probably, it's almost certainly too far gone now. And it, it certainly isn't going to change anytime soon. So maybe it's not worth talking about, but I just feel like even if it, even if it isn't a case of totally removing it from Sky, even if it is a case of finding a way to strike up a deal with the BBC Channel 4, Channel 5, whoever it is that there is increased coverage on these channels alongside the Sky's coverage or in partnership with Sky, like they have done with this, this T20 against Pakistan, like they did with the World Cup final, that would just, to me, be such a proactive way of trying to grow the game and trying to increase engagement with the game. And yeah, it's unrealistic to expect it to to just go back to totally free to air. I mean, as much as I'd love that to happen, you are right. That is, that is not going to happen, but if there would be a way to increase the engagement with all sport, I'm using cricket as an example here because this is the one that is happening right now, but this could be said for any sport, absolutely any sport. I mean, we see the world cup and the, the world cup catches the imagination about football so much more than other football does. And yes, partly that is because you get a lot of, people who don't really like football coming out to support England or Scotland or Wales because they want to support their country and they will do so even though they don't bother about football. But you also got a party thing that, as you said, it's because the World Cup's in the BBC so people can actually watch football again without having to pay to go to the station or pay to have Sky. So there's an element of that as well. And, and it is relevant. I mean, we see the Six Nations is such a big thing and you could argue that's because that's on the BBC and ITV as well. So you want to try to see if, if you can find a way to ensure that all sport is shown more in free-to-air just to increase engagement with sport across the country in general? Yeah, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I'm not sitting here and defending the big corporations and going, oh, they are in the right. They're, they're at, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Finding a way to get it more accessible to people absolutely should be something we're trying to do. Uh, and I think if we can make it happen, brilliant. It's, as I say, people much more intelligent, much more switched on, much higher above our pay grades to make, make these kind of decisions. But I'm just kind of giving a sort of a realistic picture of what the knock-on effects will be. But I think, yeah, I think you. I think the point is that it'd be amazing if it could happen, and if some sort of dystopian universe existed where we could change people's opinions and get sport on all the free-to-air channels, it'd be amazing. But as I said, in the meantime, we'll hope we can have more partnerships between Sky and the BBC and ITV that we have started to see. And we hope that they can be increased and in, increase sporting engagement in general. And looking at other sporting engagement, uh, there's been lots going on this week. So here's a roundup of some of the main things going on. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. This week sees a return of tennis with the US Open taking place at Flush Meadows. Also making their return to sport is Andy Murray, who said his body is fit and ready to go through five sets. Uh, and it's a long way to return from chronic hip injury. In football, Lionel Messi is still without the home. With him not returning to Barcelona's training this week, he could face fines of up to £1 million for missing his COVID test. It looks like Man City could be the club on the horizon for him. In the NBA and basketball in America this week, there'll be powerful message sent by all the teams who refuse to take to the court as part of a protest towards social injustice in America. A very poignant point across all sports at the moment. And good to say the players all pulling together. In Formula One, Lewis Hamilton made it five wins from seven at the Belgian Grand Prix this weekend, and he donated his win to Chadwick Boseman, the Black Panther actor unfortunately lost his battle with cancer last week.
We're delighted this week to be joined by Christine Steinable, who is a member of the South African Rugby Sevens women's squad. Chrissy has had over 20 caps playing in a number of the HSBC World Series uh, and is uh, part of the overall South African squad. Chrissy, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. First of all, how has it been? Uh, how's lockdown in this COVID life been for you? Obviously, sports shut down around the world and we haven't sort of seen uh, Sevens rugby starting to return yet. What have you been doing with your time um, when you've been uh, locked down? Eating. <laughs> good answer <laughs> i was really i was like doing what every athlete was probably doing like trying to stick to routine you know getting up early working in a session or two before you know midday um doing all my rehab stuff and, and stretching and recovery and and as time went on i kind of you know felt you felt full, full out of routine and but i also figured out the meaning of rest and in it's quite a it's for me it's a new thing um so someone asked me, like, when's the last time I actually ever, like, took a rest for more than, you know, six weeks or even a week. And, you, like, when you switch off mentally as well. And it's so funny because I've actually never done it. So I know I'm, like, I've been in sport for long and, you know, all this stuff. But I've never switched off and took a rest and been okay with not training and been okay with, with just enjoying the food I eat and, and not counting, you know, calories and oh, all that stressful stuff that we do. So for the... The remaining time of lockdown and up to now I'm actually just like really enjoying resting and not stressing too much because when when the rugby comes back it's going to be back to you know back to the grind and then you have to be on it again and I think you know maybe it's good for my body to take a rest of my mind as well yeah for sure I mean that's really refreshing to hear and I think a lot of people would agree with that that making sure you have that rest your time to yourself is really important I mean have you thought about what that will look like then when you do return to training? Do you think that you'll almost be refreshed and you might even come back to training with extra motivation and an extra attitude than you had previously because you've had that chance to rest your mind and rest your body and, and refresh within the world of rugby? Yeah, definitely. It's been such an eye-opener. Like I, like I said, I've always hustled and never, never stopped because in my mind, it was almost like if you can picture her being on a ladder. And I was on this ladder climbing and climbing and, and you know, reaching for success and progress. But you know, at my pace, which is like a very fast pace. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you if you got a picture that, and no one put me on that ladder but myself. So no one's actually pushing me to to work as hard as I am, like on my own as well. And, you know, wanting more and more and more as an athlete. Um, it's almost like for athletes, sometimes it's never enough. And it's, it's so nice to climb off the ladder as such. Um, and I think what I figured out is that you can only be the best version of yourself at work if you're a best version of yourself out of work and I think this rest has been so good so I reckon I'll come back a little bit more how do you say this I'll come back a little bit more empowered rather than in power so wow. that, I think that'll be really good and you talk about being on that ladder and, and reaching and climbing for you know success in your mind what does that success look like what's the what's the goals what's the the big thing what what are you currently climbing towards oh I was just climbing uh, first of all like five years ago I just wanted to play for my country and obviously initially I, I lived in the UK for 12 years I thought I was gonna play cricket maybe for England I was on the right tracks at Loughborough you know and then I came back to South Africa and then it started with the rugby and got the opportunity and since then I was like well I have to make this work um, I remember coming for my first camp and one knock to my to my knee I um, tore my MCL again because um, obviously wasn't rehab strong enough but 
so since then I was like, oh, I've lost an opportunity, you know, what, what, what. And eventually I got another, another chance to come. And since I got a contract, I was like, well, I need to make sure I'm on top of my game the whole time. And I need to make sure I'm in the top bracket, for all the, the fitness goals and the, all those things. And, and then it came to like the tournaments where I was like, I want to be in the starting lineup. That's just how my brain works. I, want, I don't want to start on the bench. I play better when I'm in the starting lineup. So I was doing everything to do that as well. Um, and then it came to like Commonwealth and World Cup. And, you know, then you kind of get measured on a world stage and you realize as a country in South Africa for women's sevens or women's rugby, we have a very, very long way to go. And we're, we're quite behind um, in terms of grassroots and setup and influx of players. And, but the experience, the experiences themselves were amazing. Uh, but as an athlete, my athlete brain was like, we're not good enough and I'm not good enough. We need to like do more. So those were the like, kind of goals and the, if you talk about the ladder and the pushing, that's, that's how my mind was functioning uh, a few months ago. I just wanted to make sure that we can compete on those, on those levels and actually put up a, a good fight, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of, a lot of sports people out there will relate to the, the pressures of injuries and, and the doubts that can create yourself. But you mentioned there you're a very good cricketer as well and there was an opportunity to maybe play cricket. What was it that eventually made you decide to stick with rugby? And then once you had decided to go with rugby, what was it about rugby sevens in particular that made you go for that line rather than playing kind of traditional 15-a-side rugby? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I loved cricket. That was my, that was my go-to sport um, since, like, from a young age, especially when we moved to England and there was actually women's setups in clubs. The women could get involved, or the girls at that stage, and... Um, that was new for me because that wasn't in South Africa and really loved it. Played club from that age, um, played for Derbyshire, went to university, played for Loughborough and then played um, for Warwickshire women. So I really enjoyed, I've always enjoyed the refinement of the skill there that you need. Like it's very technical and there's a lot of attention to detail and, and things like that. So that was the interest there, like always. And explains a lot while I'm why I'm doing my masters in performance analysis with the coding and the all those things. So, but yeah, I kind of accidentally started playing rugby, which is yeah, it's so interesting because the two sports are way different. Like the one sport is kind of slow, and you know you've got all the protective gear as well, like uh, gloves, pads, you know, helmet. And then I accidentally fell into rugby, which is like you literally just wear nothing and you just run into people for fun. <laughs> so, that makes no sense whatsoever. But yeah, so that started at Loughborough. They had an alumni match, Bath, Bath University versus Loughborough. And there was an injury on the Bath University side. And my friends were just, you know, like, come on, you're in. And they gave me some gear. I had no idea what I was doing. So like all the gear, no idea on the field. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed the contact most of all. So then I was like, okay, well, maybe I should, maybe I should try it. And then after a couple of years... I was like, okay, maybe I should take it seriously and see if it can go somewhere. And then I, I went for, I did go for trials, like provincial or county trials, as you guys call it, that side. And then I had to move back to South Africa. And I just kind of continued the journey from there. Like got involved with the province here, played a couple of tournaments and then ended up in Stellenbosch. So yeah, wow. absolutely I, love it. And, and do, you, do you ever get the cricket, dust, dust the whites and the pads and the gloves off and, 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 ha and have a game down the park or anything like that? Or is, is cricket well and truly in your past now? No, that's, unfortunately, that is well and truly gone now. That's, uh, it's such a funny one because I still had my cricket bat when I moved to South Africa. I could not get it over my heart to leave my cricket bat there. <laughs> um, 
So I actually packed it with me, which makes no sense. But um, it was now in lockdown. I went to visit my dad and he's in this like really small mining town in South Africa. You know, like everyone knows everyone and there's like nothing to do there. So went to his school and there was this, this other teacher with him. She was telling me about her, her um, daughter that, you know, loves cricket and she's, you know, on a good track and she's playing at a higher age group than, you know, her actual age. And she reminded me a lot of herself actually. So um, I went home to my dad's and I got the cricket bat out and we just went to give it to her. Cause I was like, I'm obviously not going to use it. I've been here for five years. The bat is still in really good shape and yeah, like we can just give it to her whether she wants. It's a, it's a, it's a gut and worst or it was, it's a bit like, it's a bit heavy, but it's like still usable. So I was like, she can either use it or she can just, I don't know, keep it, but it's there. And it's more, more of like a, a good, almost like a goodwill thing. Like just to go and say to her, like keep doing what she's doing and stuff. So that was the last piece of uh, cricket that was, that I had left. So that's, <laughs> that's also now gone. So I think it's a, it sounds like it's found a good home. As long as it doesn't yeah. end up on eBay, you're not on eBay. <laughs> and then you suddenly say, hey, that's my cricket bat. Because <laughs> they're a little bit too heavy. I'm sure that, I'm sure that won't be the case. Um, so back to the rugby side of things, what's the contract situation like in South African women's rugby? Are, are you full-time or part-time contracts? Do you have to work alongside? It sounds like you're studying alongside your, your rugby. We see sort of, you know, the men's professional sevens uh, set up. Is, is there something similar set up in the women? How does it work um, for, for you in managing your training and, and making ends meet financially? Yeah, it's, uh, so we're full-time, the sevens program. Um, and we're actually, we run alongside the men. So we're at the same facilities and we train on the same grounds and things. And, and our contracts work pretty similar, obviously, apart from the amounts offered to the women. So the amounts are, are obviously much lower. But we, and we have a smaller squad. So last year, we only had eight contracted women, which meant we had to fly in like loads of random players just to kind of train and, and play tournaments. But then this year they contracted 14 women, which is great because you need 12 to tour. Um, and it makes it easier when there's a couple of injuries. But if there's more injuries, then you're obviously in a bit of a pickle. But um, in that sense, we, we, the women still very much have to, you know, look for talent, um, fly them in if we want to train properly, make sure you have an extra five or six players that, you know, are not here on a permanent basis. And, and that makes training kind of difficult. Um, you know, if everyone's not on the same level the whole time and, and even the coaches have to plan their sessions around, you know, maybe the lower skilled and, and fitness levels of, of, of new players coming in on an irregular basis. So that's kind of difficult, but yeah, we're very privileged that we're, that we're contracted and during lockdown, we're actually still getting a salary. There was a pay cut, but we, we are getting our salary, which we're very blessed um, and thankful for. So um, yeah. And then I'm, I am studying alongside, I doing my master's actually from Worcester university, that side. And I'm doing a performance analysis because uh, I'm a bit of a geek. So, um, yeah, I hope I hide that well. But no, no, I'm a There's bit nothing, of a geek. It's the age of the geek these days. There's nothing wrong with being a geek. Yeah, I love it. So now I'm like, I'm really into the, the data and what, what data can tell you and provide um, for your game. And, that, and that's something that we haven't used a lot. So we only just um, this year started making use of, a, of an analyst. Um, and, the, and the impact she's had in our, in our performance is, is like immense. So... Um, yeah, I think it's a good route for me to go into, definitely. Yeah, well, you mentioned your performance there and you had mentioned a wee bit earlier that you felt there was times that the Sevens team in South Africa had a lot, a lot of way to grow and a long way to improve. And I guess the question is, what are, 
what is it that you think can happen within rugby sevens within the women's game in South Africa that can can improve and, and you can grow in over the next few years? And who would your major competitors be at sevens tournament? Who are the major nations that you'd be thinking, right, well, they're the ones we need to be if we're going to be successful? Yeah, I think um, you know, there's so much growth that we can do. We have so much talent in this country. It's a massive country. Um, and I think where it actually all needs to start, just on a side note, is um, like grassroots development. So obviously you need finances to do that, but we don't have rugby in schools for girls and it's still very, very traditional. I remember that I've tried to coach at a couple of schools and the head teachers are also kind of like, we don't get it. Like, why would the women play rugby? So it's very much still stuck in, in some, some tradition um, in South Africa, but that's, that's the starting point. But for our senior squad, we also do have a lot of talent here. I just think we haven't been exposed to like high performance mindset. There's no infrastructure or like there's no structure that, that kind of gets you from a young age and you're in the system and you, when you get to the top, you already know how, you know how a system works and you're already used to everything that you, you know, accountability that you need to take by yourself. And you know, you know how to set goals. Something as simple as goal setting is not familiar to some girls who've been contracted for two years. Do you know what I mean? Then someone comes in and they're like, well, what are your goals? And um, it's just really, it's really fascinating because we kind of started doing it. And one of the girls said, as an example, just one of my goals is to communicate better. But that's like, you can say you're going to communicate, but how are you going to communicate? How can we as a team help you when we know you're not doing that? You know, how can we identify and say, well, listen, yeah, you said your goal's this, like, um, you know, lift it or chat a bit more or whatever. So it's kind of like they set a goal, but they don't actually know how they're going to achieve that goal. So for me, it's like we've got a lot of like high performance mindset to develop and understanding what it what it takes at the top, you know, like all the one percenters as we all like to talk about. And, and then it goes to the team, like, playing literally on the field, like, you know, understanding like patterns and, and gameplays and, and being able to adapt quick enough to change it if it doesn't work. So you might prep for, we, we prepped so, so hard for Russia and World Cup and then it kind of didn't work out the way we thought. So then after that, we were completely thrown because we were like, well, we've prepped so hard um, on the field. We had to change our game plan. It didn't make sense to us. But so, yeah, in that sense, there's a lot, lot of growth for, for us as players. And I think it's almost, a, for me, it's like we're in our infancy as, as athletes with rugby. If you talk about the rugby brain, uh, we're almost in our infancy. And I've, I've been privileged with a little bit more experience in high performance systems, uh, systems from a younger age. So um, I just, I've, I have a little bit more understanding of those things, but we're, we have a lot of space for it and, and a lot of talent to do it. I think once we get there, we're really going to be like decent competitors. And um, I think, when we compete, we first have to compete and get onto the circuit. So we play a qualifier every year. Um, it's normally in Hong Kong, but this year it was supposed to be in Stellenbosch, which would have been a bonus for us. But we first need to beat Kenya. Like we always play them in the final and we always win, which means we, we go to, you know, to the qualifier. Um, like we got an African Cup and then we go to the qualifier. But now they've started coming into the qualifier and it's kind of like sometimes we win, sometimes we lose um, against them on the, on the bigger stages. So they would be one of the bigger ones for us um, in our own continent. But then when, once we get onto the circuit, it'll be more teams like Ireland, maybe Spain. We've beaten USA before. Like, you know, so I would say if we can end like top eight on the circuit, like then, then we've done well for ourselves. So, um, you know, teams like Fiji and Spain and Ireland, those kind of teams would be the teams that we would, we would have to look into. 
giving a decent performance against. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, I guess it's as much as you, you say there's a long way to grow, it's exciting that that growth is there and that the opportunity for growth is there. And I mean, I've certainly always looked at life on the Rugby 7 circuit and thought, well, that must be one of the best jobs in the world, getting to travel around to all these places and play such an entertaining and, and high-paced sport. Um, I mean, can you tell us a wee bit about what life is like on the circuit and, and is it as, as, as great and as glamorous as it potentially looks on the outside? Well, like I said, we're, we're not on the circuit, so we don't get to travel as much as those guys, but we also do obviously have our social like tournaments around the globe. So like we we've played in Dubai and San Francisco and Australia and Canada and you know like we have played in France as well and yeah it's it's amazing when you get to see these places and I never thought for one I would actually ever get to go to some of these places in my life so and the fact that you're there to do a job you don't get to be a tourist as such but you actually get to play in some of the biggest stadiums like Hong Kong is one of the biggest stadiums on the seventh circuit the crowd is amazing like there's no there's no other feeling like it when you step into that specific um, arena. So, you know, you can't hear anyone. You can't even hear yourself speak. And But the crowd, they support everyone. They, they're not just there to support their own country. Everyone supports, like, everyone there. So it's, it's an amazing feeling. And also just being surrounded by that caliber of, of athletes as well. So when we had Cape Town Sevens and, you know, like, all the – all the men athletes are, are kind of mingling at breakfast and, and dinner with the females and everyone's getting on and getting to know each other and talking sport, you know, like, and, and giving tips. So people are like talking to different athletes and, you know, giving tips on, on, on your game or, you know, like people come up to you and say, Oh, we've watched your game. You did really well. And you know, how did you feel about this? And did you try this? And ugh, it's just, it's almost like such a family vibe. It's very competitive at the same time, but there's always like, we're always mates off the field. So it's a, it's, yeah, it's something I think I will cherish for a very long time once I finish. It's going to be an experience that I've learned so much from. And I think hopefully I'll continue in a different... I think maybe I'll transition out of rugby, but into either a coach role or analyst or something um, and continue that path, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough to to go to the Dubai Sevens, Adelaide Sevens, Sevens here in, in Scotland. And it certainly is a festival atmosphere at all these... Um, events and and i can imagine as an athlete that you can you can feed off that um yeah. just you know what what's the so obviously getting onto the circuit is a big thing for, for you and the south african team you know is there any sort of indication of of when you potentially gonna be able to get back onto the field and and looking slightly further ahead you know the commonwealth games in, in 2022 is that a, a big sort of build up uh, aim for you are, are you already there do you have to qualify for that you know what what does the sort of uh, sort of longer term goals uh, look like as well yeah so those are all like all options for us and we haven't really spoken about it as a team yet even though we know it's on the horizon because if you if you think about it a couple of years they go by really quickly if you if you have a big goal in mind so um, we haven't quite touched on it yet but there's, there's starting to be some whispers about Commonwealth and, and World Cup and, and things like that. So I think, yeah, like I think, I think what we, we kind of need to do to get onto the circuit first is what we need to like win the qualifier. So that was supposed to be in March. They're going to reschedule, but we don't know for when. So everything for us is kind of up in the air in that, in that sense. We have had no dates for return to play. We're still even waiting to hear about contracts. We don't know. You know, they kind of mentioned that they can't guarantee that all of us will get contracts again end of 
end of this year. So we're all a bit nervous and we don't know what to expect. And then we don't actually know if we're merging with 15s, which is something they mentioned. So um, we have no idea actually what's going on and how prep is going to work um, if that merge happens. So I actually don't have a legit answer for you because we, we literally don't know when we're back, uh, if we're going to get contracts, how that works, if we're merging with 15s and, and what does that mean for prep for the bigger stuff. So I, I actually have no idea. But I think there's a, a common theme running amongst sport globally about um, a lot of uncertainty and not knowing. So I think um, everyone, and, and not just in sport, but out of sport as well. Um, yeah. That's the case. Well, um, talking of not having a, knowing prep or what it looks like you may not be ready to be prepped for um the utility players gauntlet of questions so you're gonna have 45 seconds of random questions here uh chrissy are you ready for uh, to run the gauntlet yeah hit me there's no time to run the gauntlet too hot or too cold too hot starter or dessert starter best friends character Ooh, joey Night on the town or night in with a book? Night on the town. Fruit or veg? Fruit. Are we alone in the universe? No. Mountain or sea? Sea, definitely. Favourite band? Oh, mate. Killing me. Picture this. Uh, James Bond or Jason Bourne? Jason Bourne. Red or black? Black. fun I like that <laughs> you, you were very assured there was no like messing about it was like head down get the job done I was really impressed with your, <laughs> your confidence yeah I was like well, well I think the one that threw me was the band because I I love music and I have a, I have like yeah such a variation so I was like oh man well that's, that, that's the thing about that question is that often when you ask somebody you know what's your favorite band they go oh can i name five or can i name three <laughs> but in this environment you have to say one so you might even yourself have learned who your favorite band now is who did you say uh there's a band called picture this is it i, I don't know them. they're a south african band oh no they're not south african um but i mean R- rory claims to be a big music man <laughs> so I, i'm glad i'm glad that he doesn't know they you're teaching him something yeah they're kind of like uh, i don't know if they're massively well known or not but i found i only found them a couple of years ago and there's this one album i'll send you a screenshot as well like but they're not like um i mean the other band that came into my head is like kings of leon and, and things like that so i have like such a i can go from like really sad music to like you know nickelback um dark horse album type style so you know and muse and all those things so but this one is more like very chilled um yeah it's very chilled vibe so i'll send you a screenshot you can check them out there we cool. go sounds great so, we'll, we'll, we'll start a utility players desert island discs and you can be the first <laughs> guest <laughs> oh it sounds I should have just talk to you about music this whole time so i was chrissy um, well, i can talk to you about it for days <laughs> <laughs> brilliant well thank you very much uh, for your time really interesting insight um for us there and all the best that when rugby does come back, you know, and, and on your journey for to get on, hopefully get on the circuit and, and kick on with South African rugby. It sounds like it's on, on a really good path and doing things the right way. So we'll be looking with interest and, and, and all the best with it um, on the return when it comes. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. What amazed me there, Rory, was for a country like South Africa, which is rugby mad to my mind, and, and, and had such a successful history of, of of rugby and and such a you know i've been to south africa luckily enough and the passion they have for that sport 
to to hear that the kind of where the women's game is and the sevens game is is it just blows my mind that it's it's still so far behind. Yeah, for sure. I think maybe it's it shows how lucky we are to have such investment in women's sport in the UK over the past kind of five, ten years and the women's sport has grown massively across all sports and it's really great to see and it's a shame that such a huge rugby nation, I mean the current in the men's game, the current World Cup holders is unfortunately in their women's team isn't isn't where they maybe should be and and, and from what we've heard there's loads of fantastic talent within women's rugby within South Africa and they just need that those structures and those opportunities to show it and hopefully they'll get those in the near future. Yeah, I mean, listening to Chrissy there, it was clear, you know, that they're, they're on the right path. You know, the, the sort of professional structure they're trying to put in place, the way that the her and her team are going about it. But it's just a lack of opportunities. I mean, I hadn't even appreciated they weren't necessarily on the seven circuit and they're having to qualify with that. You just think, when you think rugby, you just think South Africa. And, and a bit of naivety on my part. But I think it's it's something, you know, I'm certainly going to be watching close now because I think it's something that would be a great success story to, to see South African women's rugby, you know, really sort of stamping its authority on the game. So this episode is the last episode of season two of the Utility Players. As ever, at the end of the season, there will be a bit of bonus content coming out next week. And our bonus content for the end of season two is we're going to be starting a Utility Players uh, Premier League Fantasy Football League. Uh, I'm a massive fantasy football player in in many sports. I'm a a big fan of it. And we thought it would be a really good thing to to start up a utility players league. So uh, for bonus content next week, you'll be hearing more me and Roy discussing all things Premier League as that, as that returns to our screens uh, very shortly. Yeah, and it's also worth mentioning that there'll be no top three this week because we're going to do the top three Premier League strikers of all time. So we thought we'd push that back into next week and tie that in with our fancy football content. So for more top three action, tune in to the bonus episode next week. Brilliant. Well, uh, as I said, uh, that's it of season two. Uh, we'll have a bonus content next week as we uh, look for the start of the Premier League season and our instruction of our fantasy Premier League utility players. Uh, but until then, until season three, everyone stay safe. <laughs>